Welcome to the Beyond the Reef podcast, where I talk to experts and researchers in the reef aquarium hobby, discussing a broad range of topics from corals and reef biology to water chemistry and equipment. We take a deep dive into our guests' methods, techniques, and top reef keeping tips. My name is Adam Sutherland, and I am the owner-operator of Frag Garage Corals, based out of British Columbia, Canada. All right, so my guest today is Michael Paletta, who really needs no introduction. You probably have read articles he's written, maybe seen a lecture he's done. He's just been all over the reefing world for 40 plus years, and he's just an absolute well of knowledge and super nice guy. I wanted to take this episode in a little bit of a different direction. So we talked about the psychology of reefing and how it affects us day to day for good or bad. We stayed on this topic not for a super long time, and then we just got into uh, general methodology stuff, but I definitely picked up a lot of good pointers. Uh, Just something I should note is that Mike says ammonium hydroxide, and he actually means to say ammonium bicarbonate. So if you're thinking about dosing ammonia to your tank, it should probably be ammonia carbonate or ammonia bicarbonate. I will link in the show notes to some articles and publications that Mike has written, and make sure you check out that article he wrote on the psychology of reefing to go a little deeper into this. Thanks to the direct support of hobbyist Bobby Heath, I'm happy to bring this podcast to you absolutely ad-free. If you want to support us, the best things you can do are like, share, write us a review, and definitely subscribe. Not enough people are hitting subscribe. And if you have any comments or questions or suggestions for future guests, please reach out. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Mike Paletta. Cool. Well, I'm good to start if you are. Oh, yeah, I'm ready. Okay. Nice. Well, thanks for joining me, man. It's nice to meet you. I mean, I've kind of followed you over the years, but never, never chatted in person. So. Yep. No, I appreciate it. Yeah. Cool, man. Uh, I kind of wanted to take a little departure from the normal. Well, I'm sure we'll get into some normal kind of tank talk, obviously, but uh, I kind of wanted to talk about like the psychology of reef keeping and kind of like, you know, how it fits into our lives and affects our, you know, day-to-day emotions, because that actually is a big component of it, whether it be good or bad. So I was thinking maybe you could kind of give me just like a breakdown of kind of, I don't know, your journey in the hobby and like how reef keeping has kind of fit into your life over the years. Well, it's basically been part of my life for the last 40 years. Yeah. Uh, March will be my 40th year of having a reef tank. Crazy. So it's obviously <laughs> been, I mean, obviously we were kids when we started and there were only like a dozen of us and we all knew each other mm-hmm. and would talk on the phone every night or as often as we could with, Hey, what are you using as your media and your trickle filter? Oh, I'm using soldiers. Oh, I'm using my wife's curlers. Everybody would just try anything different. You know, where did you, what did you get new? Oh, I got a leather coral or I got a singularia. Because it wasn't easy to get corals then. Yeah. I mean, it's gotten it's gotten very easy, and it's gotten more difficult, and it's gotten very easy. It all depends on what you're looking for. Like right now, you it's difficult to find really nice soft corals for the yeah. most part. Yeah, I'd agree with but that. But you can find any SPS coral you want in the universe. There's something for everyone. Yeah. But, yeah, I've actually written a couple of articles <laughs> in terms of the psychology of the hobby. One is, why is the hobby so addicting? And two, for a recent Reef Builders article was, is the hobby stress-inducing or stress-releasing? <laughs> yeah. So it, it's it, it's all of those things. I mean, you have to have a certain personality to do this long term. Yeah. And I mean, I know a lot of the people that have been doing this, you know, 20 years or longer. 
But I also see a lot of people that get in it for three, five years and get burned out because it becomes so intense and it becomes such a mm-hmm. integral part of their life that they have to make a decision at some point whether to spend time with their family or their job or do this mm-hmm. because it can become all consuming and uh, you, you have to sort of control it. Yeah, totally. Because, you know, I, I'm sure you know how it is. It's like if the tank's not doing super well or you're losing a piece or one of your favorite pieces is just, yeah, not doing so well, it can definitely like affect your your day. Like I was actually just thinking of that expression, uh, happy wife um, <laughs> equals happy life. But I feel like with reef keeping, it's like happy wife plus happy, happy tank equals happy, happy life. <laughs> Well, a, a lot of spouses will disagree that it's happy tank, happy life, yeah. <laughs> happy wife, happy life is secondary. In so that it's, order, it's, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's uh, we came up with one uh, tank is well. No, tank's not well, life is hell. Yeah. That, that seems to be a, an even better one because I know people that, I know I'm the same way. If I have something going on, I, I wake up thinking about the tank. I can't fall asleep at night. And it's not just me. It's a lot of people. <laughs> Uh, like I'm, I'm really good friends with Sanjay Joshi and we talk yeah. about this all the time, uh, probably a year, year and a half ago, he was having major issues in his tank and he was, you know, I'm going to get out of this. I can't take this. And then making a lot of different changes and things, he got it turned around. And when I saw it in October, it was as spectacular as it had been in the last 10 years. So, yeah. and his life was, he was happier. I mean, yeah. I, I know when Sanjay's <laughs> not happy and he knows when I'm not happy, we know, and we have problems and we know when things are well. And it's and it's pretty much with everybody. Yeah. I mean, yeah. like I, I I communicate a lot with Andrew Sandler. He of the seventeen thousand gallon tank. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Big tank, small tank. It doesn't really matter if the tank's doing well. When his tank's doing well, he's much happier than when the tank isn't doing well, or when certain group of fish aren't doing well. Like he was having issues with uh, excess small bubbles in the tank, and he lost one of his favorite fish from getting a bubble eye from the the compressed uh, air bubbles within the tank. Uh-huh, it's so and random. he was just, he, yeah, and he was just so <laughs> miserable about that. Mm-hmm. And I understand it because it literally was a one of a kind fish. Yeah. So, I mean, I get sad when I lose any fish. Yeah. I mean, and we all lose fish for stupid reasons. I mean, I have yeah. hand built lids on every single tank with the mesh just to make sure things don't jump out. And things still find still a way. Find a way. <laughs> yeah. there, there's, there's no possible way. Yeah. I had a giant, when I say giant, I mean I had a yellow tang this big jump out of a tank. There wasn't a hole. There was no, I checked the netting. There was no place it could get out. And it still somehow miraculously got out of the tank. Yeah. Needless to say, as, as impossible to get as yellow tangs are, I was devastated by that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's that's a tough one. Um, I mean, on the flip side of the whole, you know, stress thing, like, you know, I, I guess <coughs> aquariums in general are kind of like, I think there's some science to prove that there's, you know, effects of like yeah. lowering bro- blood pressure, anxiety, things like that. But I mean, that's if you're talking about a simple, I don't know, say freshwater system versus the kind of like high, high paced reef tanks that a lot of us have. It's, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of in the fast lane, you know, <laughs> with these tanks. To, to a degree, yeah. but we, you can get so involved in it. It does help you to relax. I worked in mm-hmm. oncology for 40 years and my life was fairly stressful, but when I'd come home and I'd start working in the tank, whether it was gluing in corals or doing a water change or just monkeying around in the tank, yeah, I can feel myself. All that stress was gone by the time I got done doing it. Yeah. So if you do it right, it can still be stress-reducing, 
But if you do it wrong, it's really stressing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, yeah, I agree with that. Like sometimes the times that I'm just tinkering and like cleaning the glass, doing some of the most basic stuff is the time where I I just kind of zone out and enjoy it, you know, and it's not, you know, you're not thinking about like all the complex parts of it. You're just kind of like got your hands in the tank and you feel kind of connected to it. And it's just kind of it's a nice, nice zone to be in good headspace. Yeah. I mean, it's can and it, it should be relaxing. The other thing that it should be, it should be more fun. And that that's one of the things I've been stressing this year. I actually just did an article on that, how to make the time, how to make reef keeping more fun. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people have lost the fun aspect of the hobby. I mean, when I got into it, I was into it just to have fun. I made a lot of friends that I've had for a lot of years, which is fun. I made a lot of road trips. Uh, I obviously gave a lot of talks and stuff like that. Yeah. But I had fun doing it. It wasn't social media where you ask a question and get flamed. It wasn't where you buy a $500 frag and hope to grow it and take off two frags and sell it to make your money back. And I'm afraid that a lot of people have gotten involved in that aspect of the hobby rather than enjoying the hobby yeah. and having fun with it. Yeah, I mean, totally. There's a lot I don't more. Think you need to have $500 frags in order to enjoy your No, thing. totally. I mean, you can get away with a red planet and still enjoy it just as much. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, that's a good thing to address, like you're saying, is that kind of staying inspired and avoiding the burnout. And I think, you know, that in-person, like, social aspect of it is what really kind of keeps me excited. Like, even doing this podcast has is, is probably re-inspired me more than ever. And I've been in the hobby since 2000 or 2001, so I've seen a lot of a lot of changes, for sure. Not, not as much yeah. as you, but... <laughs> yeah, the last 10 years have been sort of a major leap forward from everything from smartphones, digital photography, and LED lighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's all in the last uh, 10 to 12 years. So that is what has changed things dramatically more than mm-hmm. pretty much anything else. The other thing is how many new people have gotten into the hobby. With yeah. COVID and everything else, you saw this major increase in totally. a number of people within the hobby. And whether they all stay or stayed, because right now there's economic aspects that are driving some people out. Like it was estimated, uh, I write for Ultramarines magazine in England, and they just did a survey and they found that over a million hobbyists, not reef hobbyists, but aquarium hobbyists had gotten out of the hobby in England because of the cost of electricity. Their rates of electricity have quadrupled. So uh, literally to lose a million people that were keeping fish is a, a big blow to the hobby yeah that's wild yeah i was thinking about that with um even in europe with power being more and you know i wonder how much that affects new people getting in it would seem daunting if it was well i mean obviously the lighting and the equipment is more efficient now i, I mean degree, for the most part still, yeah 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 but you, i mean you don't obviously you don't need a one horsepower chiller to keep a tank cold so you can save money there yeah but in terms of watt per watt you're still not any more efficient with LEDs than you were with metal halides. Yeah. It's not like LEDs are, you know, 90% of the electricity turns into ele- turns into light. It's still mm. about 50% the same as it was with halides. Yeah. So yeah. In, in that regard, it's about the same. Yeah, for sure. What are you running for lighting these days? I use radions on literally every tank I have. Yeah, yeah. I've ha- I have since the beginning, and they've been reliable, and I can grow anything because I have... A, pl- a freshwater planted tank, believe it or not, which is mm. my relaxing tank. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have a soft coral sunlight tank, an LPS with goniopores and euphilias, a frag tank, and then I have a 500-gallon SPS-dominated tank. Yeah. Each one has radions on it. Yeah. Different generations. 
Some have four generation four, some have generation five, some have generation six. Yeah. Any favorite generation in particular? Or? I actually like generation four the best. I've Just, heard that from a few people. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 to me, at least, it seemed to be the most efficient and produced the, the, the light I wanted. I mean, obviously, they try to improve things with the fives and sixes, but I, it, it's a personal decision. Obviously, some people like fives, some people like sixes. I'm old school. I don't like to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Any supplement bars or anything or just the straight up Radeons? I run Reef Brights on some tanks and then I run uh, Blades. And also I've been playing with Orphic. They're strip lights with, yeah. uh, with primarily the blues and purples. And those have really bumped up the colors on some coral. Yeah, I find the Orphics, like I like the pop and the color you get from them more. But the Reef Brights, yeah. the spread is just so good on those. Those, yeah, yeah, those XHOs—they're pretty, pretty amazing. And you yeah. know, Tulio, I'm sure you—you've corresponded oh, yeah. quite a bit over the years. But uh, I'd actually well, like to actually... see a version of the the Reef Bright um, Actinic that has a little more purple spectrum in it, like a little, like a mix of diodes. Yeah, I agree. No, I've actually had uh, Tulio here a couple times. When we've gone over. He's brought all his toys to see what the spectrums are, what the par is, everything on the tank from the sunlight tank to the tanks downstairs. So, I mean, we, we played for like six or eight hours with all of his lighting tools. Yeah. <laughs> Cause I mean, I mean, to see that, I mean, cause my sunlight tank obviously gets sunlight, mm -hmm. but when he was here, it was false. It was like right in between. So instead of getting the six hours of sunlight, like it does in the summer, it was getting the, the, uh, three to four hours, like it does in the fall and the spring. Mm -hmm. And still when the light was on, I was still getting 1200 par in the tank. Mm -hmm. I don't think I've I mean, seen this. The bottom of the tank. Wow, that's wild. I mean, that's a thing when you actually think about: Are we giving our tanks too much light? It's it's uh, <laughs> you know, it's like one of those things when the sun gets through the window one day and hits your tank, and your tank you can't even see your tank lighting because the sun is so much brighter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it, what's interesting in this tank is initially it was going to be a SPS tank, and I brought up frags from down in the basement that were under LED lights, and they were just brilliantly colored. Mm -hmm. And I said, this will be great. I'll put them under sunlight and they'll just go nuts. Within a month, they were all brown. It looked like a reef because everything was cream or chocolate brown. All the colors were gone because there were no LED lights changing mm -hmm. the color of these corals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How's I mean, the, how's the system set up that gets natural sunlight? Is it like um, in a kind of like a room that has like like open ceiling, I guess, panels or something? It, or It's in the sun. It's in quote unquote, the sunroom, mm -hmm. it has four skylights above and the sun obviously passes about that, but it also has one wall is basically a window. Mm -hmm. So the sun comes from there in the morning, lights the tank as it goes and then lights it from above as it goes across the ceiling. That's cool. I wonder like, have you ever, I mean, I'm sure you have, have you taken frags or corals from that tank and put them under your like artificial lighting and kind of compared coloration? Uh, they're much more brilliantly colored under the LEDs than they are under the, the sunlight. Yeah, but I mean, if you took the ones that were grown under the sunlight and put them under the LEDs, because obviously the sunlight's not gonna gonna show as right. much of the you know colors. But yeah, yeah, they'll start they'll start to color up after about three months. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. And then there's these are on different sets of water chemistry. I guess they're not on the same system. Yeah, the, the soft coral tank is much simpler. Yeah. I don't manipulate it as much. I just do water changes and. Just let everything go yeah. versus the SPS tanks, ICP testing and everything else. Yeah, totally. Um, like as far as your par ranges, um, I hate talking about par because it's kind of boring, but I'm curious because you guys probably, you said you did a lot of testing. Like what was your kind of range from 
from high to low in terms of you know SPS placement to the bottom? Sort of. The top of the bottom is at about 250 par. Mm-hmm. The par at the top is around 700 par. Yeah, 700. Crazy. Yeah. That's pretty up there. Yeah. And like... Well, I over the years, I have listened to Sanjay, which I hate to admit, <laughs> but I listened to Sanjay and saw the growth rates he was getting in his tank. And for 10 hours a day, he runs his radions all channels at 100%. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite that crazy. I run all channels for six hours, and it took me six months to go from three hours to six hours. Mm-hmm. And I am seeing the superior growth. But on the other ends, I run blue for the first hour and blue for the last two hours. So mm-hmm. I get the best of both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, I wonder, like how much nutrient levels affect the coral's ability to take high par like that? Um, Because, I mean, in my experience, uh, if you're running fairly low nutrient system, like near, let's not say undetectable, but, you know, nitrates like 1 or 2 and phosphates are like 0.02, 0.03, I don't think the corals can take that kind of par. No, they can't. In in Sanjay's tank, before (laughs) this bout, but like two years ago, we, we measured what his par was and at the top it was 1100 1200 a thousand for like the first foot foot and a half but his nitrate levels were 90 (laughs) and his phosphate levels were 0.3 yeah but but there was not a speck and i mean not a speck of algae anywhere in the tank Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so you can run like you said high nutrients with high light but if you're running low nutrients and you run need to run much lower par 250 350 max on a, a low nutrient system yeah there is a, a ratio between those yeah that, yeah and the the other thing that i during covid i got uh, data from 20 people that i thought had spectacular tanks and with nothing to do but time i looked at a lot of different things and i found out that the uh, ratio between nitrate and phosphate was more important than the actual levels that the tanks that were doing the best had a, a ratio of 100 to 1 nitrate to phosphate or higher. Yeah. And what's interesting at MACNA, I was talking with my friend uh, uh, Claude Schumacher, Fauna Marin, mm-hmm. and we were talking about this. He said, oh, yeah, the ratio is 100 to 1. He said, everybody in Europe knows that. I said, well, people <laughs> in the United States do not know that. Yeah. So I, I have been pushing that people should be running the 100 to 1 ratio yeah you know, I, I push the same 50 to, for sure. 50 to 1 is good but 100 to 1 seems to be the, the magic number yeah yeah and the interesting thing is a lot of people talk about that whole red field ratio thing but i think we can kind of let go of that because it's a very like specific study it's old it's yeah it's not super relevant to actual reefs uh, i was just talking to lou about no. this actually um, but i'll talk to claude because i'm actually recording an episode with him in a few days so Oh, okay. Yeah, but um, I said hello. Yeah, Lou was kind of <laughs> saying. I chat with him often, so nice. Yeah, Lou was saying uh, he's like the phosphates a little bit higher lately. Like he used to, he said he used to say I think five to oh five to to point one, and now he's saying point point one to 0.15 is kind of you know his his sweet spot and kind of what they're what they're putting on their products, I guess, with Tropic Marin. So yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I try. I try to keep the phosphates point one to point one five, and the nitrates fifteen to thirty. Yeah, and I don't. I don't have any issues with algae with that. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the thing you found in common with all of these these like really you know I, you'd say top level kind of growers is that they they have that balanced nutrient ratio. Yeah, I mean that was that was at least there were twenty fifteen of them had that ratio or better. Mm-hmm. 
So from that standpoint, a couple of the tanks were off the charts. They were run, let's say, uniquely in the ways that most people yeah. would do them. So that was they were the outliers. But if you look at the the bulk of the people that were in the in the survey I did, they were on that hundred to one ratio. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another thing I would be curious about with those nutrient levels is if they're being achieved by feeding or if they're being supplemented with nitrate and phosphate additives. Most of those, these individuals all had a lot of fish in their tanks. Mm -hmm. So it's primarily from feeding. Only a couple were adding nitrates or phosphates because their levels had gotten too low. Yeah. But they were more of a, okay, I did a test and it's way, way too low. Or I'm starting to see some white tips. Mm -hmm. And I, need, I know I need to add something. But it's not like a, a very, literally none of them were constantly adding phosphate or nitrate to their tanks. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That, I mean, that's an interesting thing to take out of it. Because um, I think it gets back to just the idea that the best food for our corals is fish poop probably. <laughs> you know. uh, actually, we're, we're, Sandra and I are playing with something new that is probably unique in that we're starting to dose ammonia into our tanks. Okay. Because yeah. ammonia is actually taken much faster. There was an, actually an article probably 10 years ago that fish pee is critical for sustaining the corals because of how highly concentrated the ammonia is in it and how readily it is taken up by the corals. Mm -hmm. So we've both have gone to adding, uh, I believe, ammonium hydroxide Okay. Uh, in, a, in a small amount often throughout the day. Yeah. And like I said, Sanjay's tank is as spectacular as ever. And yeah. Sanjay has been growing corals faster than anyone I know for the last 35 years. Yeah. So he started doing it after doing some research. And then I followed up and started adding it. Mm -hmm. And now I know I have at least half a dozen people that are also doing it. Okay. And the only thing you have to watch for is that your nitrates might start to climb. Mm -hmm. So you may have to do some carbon dosing. But the fish have never been affected as long as you don't do a bolus dose. I mean, you don't dump in, you know, a bucket of ammonia. Yeah. I mean, 10 milliliters of a 5% ammonia solution isn't going to cause a whole lot of problems. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. I'd be interested that, in the dosing for sure, because, you know, if anybody wants to try it, it's it's something you can try and just start with almost nothing and then ramp it yeah. up, you know. Well, that's what I started with. Well, what we do is uh, I had 20 grams of the ammonium hydroxide to half a liter of water. And from that, I add 40 milliliters to my 500 gallon tank a day. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you're not talking, and I started off at 10 just to make sure I didn't cause any issues. And after a couple of weeks, I went to 20, then after a month, 30, and now I'm at the same ratio that Sanjay's at mm -hmm. and seeing the same things, faster growth, uh, more encrusting of the corals. Uh, my alkalinity and calcium usage went up by 25%. Because mm -hmm. I dose, so I know how much I had to increase it. Mm -hmm. So from from that standpoint, I, I'm I'm getting what I expected without any real downside. The nitrates did start to creep up; they got up mm -hmm. to like 25, 30. Yeah. So I, I've since had to go to carbon dosing and brought them back down. But yeah, that hasn't that hasn't been a big deal. What we're using for your carbon source? Uh, just cheap vodka. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I was just talking to Lou about this too. Actually, I don't know which episode I'm going to release first. So, um, but uh, he That's was talking—he <laughs> was talking about the difference of carbon sources and how some are probably more favorable for some of the beneficial bacteria, and then some of them will just feed both types, and those tend to be the more simple, simple forms like vodka and and, and uh, vinegar. Yeah, that's what I—I I was thinking of possibly adding vinegar to this as well, just to see what I what changes. Because one of the things I'm starting to do research on and look at is <clears> the <throat> microbiome around the corals. 
mm-hmm. and beneficial bacteria. Mm-hmm. And Those are in my notes. <laughs> Those oh, are in okay. my notes to talk about. So let's go there. <laughs> and and is that some of the reason why people are having more problems with like dinoflagellates and things like that, or even starting the tank because they start off with dead rock. They don't have the wide culture of bacteria in there. They don't have the wide mm-hmm. variety. Yeah. And is that why we now have to add bacteria into the tanks, which I, I kind of do, but I kind of laugh about mm-hmm. because if you read the manufacturer's instructions, it says you need to add this weekly. Well, if it's bacteria and the environment's stable and good, mm-hmm. the bacteria isn't going to die off. It, no. You shouldn't have to add <laughs> it every week. Yeah. So I realize they, they have to sell product. I mean, if you only sold it once, it's not really they're not going to make a lot of money on it. <laughs> but some of these things, you, I mean, really, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to add it once, and you should be good. And then now you have uh, companies like Aquabiome doing testing. So you get some, but it's a month after you did you sent them the water, mm-hmm. which it, I understand why it takes that long, but I yeah. also understand that's problematic because a month in a reef tank's life is a lifetime. Yeah. I mean, it could change dramatically if you change anything. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and then there's... Other factors such as uh, high CO2, low pH also tends to breed the more pathogenic bacteria like Vibrio and yeah, possibly Archobacter. Yeah. So there's, there's a, so much going on here that we don't know mm-hmm. that we're just starting to learn about. I mean, it, it's kind of the, – the, to me, it's the next step. I mean, there, there's three things I think we need to understand better. That's the bacterial microbiome of the corals. Two is coral nutrition and three is coral diseases. And I think they're all kind of related to one another. Yeah, definitely. Because even when I had uh, Vibrio and Archobacter infections, the question is why were some corals affected significantly and other corals never had mm-hmm. any issues with this whatsoever? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll bring up a specific issue that quite a few of us, um, I think Ray may have talked to you about this too, is uh, this darkening of the tissue and kind of losing polyp extension on certain pieces. And it's been... Yeah. Um, kind of universally from other people I've talked to, it it seems to be a lot of the same species that are affected, which I think are mostly Aussie species because it's there's a Vivid's Confetti, the Tyree Pink Lemonade, uh, some Strawberry Shortcake variants. It seem to be the ones that are all kind of like the most prone to it. And, yeah. um, you know, the solution that was proposed to me was initially, um, this was a couple of years ago, was somebody said, I think you should treat the system with Chemicline. Uh, and I just treated it as, as, you know, directed and the issues did get better, but they came back. Um, and I, I didn't want to touch this because I want to stay away from the antibiotic treatments in the tank, but I did end up doing a Cipro treatment on my system Mm -hmm. and it totally solved the problem. Um, Yeah. but I will also say that I have been adding a few strains of different bacteria products since, and also adding a, a bit of carbon source too. So I'm sort of trying to add new bacteria, feed it. And I think that comes down to that microbiome thing. And if we can find a way to get the microbiome of the coral healthier and more resilient in the first place, we should never have to do these kind of treatments. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in my tank, my rock is almost 30 years old. Mm -hmm. So I I think I've probably got a lilopathy where certain bacteria dominated and killed off the other bacteria. So I have to add bacteria to it. And also, uh, by, I, during COVID, one of the problems or one of the stupid things I did was I did a lot of experiments and I stressed the tank by bouncing things around. Mm-hmm. And that also caused some issues. And I ended up doing 
uh, a very aggressive Cipro treatment. Mm-hmm. And once I did that, the STN I was getting totally stopped. I mean, I would have a coral that was looking fine. Two days later, it would just slowly start to decay. I'd break pieces off. I'd dip it in uh, uh, peroxide or witch hazel or a number mm-hmm. of different things. It would be okay. And then it would come back a month later, two months later, and eventually die. But mm-hmm. since I've done the Cipro, I've had none of those issues. Yeah. And I mean, it's been rather miraculous. But after the Cipro treatment, I did large water changes and then I dumped in a ton of different bacteria mm-hmm. from at least five or six different companies because none of them can have more than like 10 or 20 strains of anything. Mm-hmm. And there's probably 50 different good strains of bacteria in our tanks. Yeah. So consequently, I add a, a lot of different things. Yeah, yeah. And also, you don't know, like every manufacturer has a different way of preserving the bacteria. And, you know, there's there's some dry forms, which I think probably are a little bit more reliable as far as their shelf life and whatnot, because you're activating, you know. But uh, yeah, I mean, how do you feel about the the antibiotic trend? It's kind of a, a North American thing more than anything, you know. Well, one, because antibiotics are basically illegal to use on animals in Europe. I'm yeah. talking with my friends over there. They just can't get them. So they try to come up with other means for treating their diseases. Mm-hmm. And two, part of the problem is in, in talking with some of the friends of mine that are importers is that some of the collectors are now treating every coral they have with neomycin mm-hmm. before they ship it. Consequently, if you're doing low-dose sort of run-of-the-mill antibiotic, all they're doing is breeding out the more virulent strains of bacteria that come over here. And if they're in a stress-filled tank, they can wipe out the tank. So it's it's an issue throughout the hobby that isn't discussed a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's more pests and pathogens than I've ever seen. There's now literally something that eats everything we have in our tank, from mm-hmm. uh, uh, euphilia eating nudibranchs <laughs> yeah, yeah. to... Uh, uh, Goniopore eating flatworms. I mean, there's something that eats everything. Yeah, and there's something that and, eats that too. <laughs> something yeah. that eats the pest, but not those are harder well, the, to come by. <laughs> the key, yeah, the key is to find. Okay, I still haven't found anything that eats Montipor eating nudibranchs. Oh, and pe- I have tried. peppermint shrimp do, but if you have a 500 gallon system, you'd probably have to put in 500 peppermint shrimp. Yeah. <laughs> now, while every Montipor now gets double dipped, goes into a quarantine tank for at least two months, gets cut off its base. And then it goes into the tank mm-hmm. because I had them once and I had to take every one tipper out of a 500 gallon tank, put them in a quarantine tank and dip them uh, two or three times a week for three months. Yeah. I'm not doing that again. Yeah. They're brutal because they, you know, they, they actually roam around the tank a little bit. So even if you've removed the piece, they could still be in there. And then they just seem to lay eggs like, like, like it's going out of business. You know, <laughs> like, They're literally born pregnant. Yeah. I, I swear they're the only <laughs> organism I know that's born pregnant. Yeah. As soon as they eat, let's lay eggs. We ate already. Yeah. We're ready to go. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. I mean, anyone that has them, it's just a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, well, I'm sure you've seen your share of, of pests over the years, and it's always like, uh, you, let's talk about the psychology part of the hobby, <laughs> dealing with pests. Yeah, it's, discovering something new you have to worry about, too. Is uh, Yeah, I found whelks in the middle of the night eating the tips off the staghorn corals. I found mm-hmm. Australian sea spiders, which are, uh, eat whatever they want. Really? Uh, I, yeah, last spring, Sanjay and I went and saw our friend Joey Ayulo at the uh, Long Island Aquarium. And he had a white amphipod in his 20,000-gallon tank that was about the size of a grain of rice. 
And if you touched it, it would swim like a spiral mm-hmm. and it would lay eggs. And when the eggs hatched, they like kind of exploded like snow and land on anything. And this thing ate virtually anything. Whoa. It ate <laughs> mushroom corals. It ate leather corals. Finally, he wiped it out with the uh, interceptor. But imagine how much interceptor he had to use on a 20,000 gallon tank. But yeah. he finally got rid of it. Yeah, that's but crazy. But it was, it was the nastiest pathogen. And now I'm hearing uh, from some of my friends in uh, Asia that uh, in uh, Hong Kong, they're seeing a super red bug that isn't killed by interceptor, isn't killed by any dip, and that also eats anything. Fortunately, it hasn't gotten here yet, but it's only a matter of time. So that's something Mm -hmm. to be incredibly fearful of. Because mm-hmm. I mean, I, mean, I remember when Dustin Dorton came up with the cure for red bugs mm-hmm. 25 years ago. It seems like yesterday, but probably yeah. 25 years ago, and that was a lifesaver. Yeah, I mean, we've been able to find things that kill most things, but we have, still haven't really come up with a really good cure for like acro-eating flatworms or. We can manage them, but you never really get rid of yeah, them once you yeah. have them in your tank. Yeah, and back to the like the um, the red bugs thing. The red bugs actually died at a fairly low dose of interceptor, but now there's bugs that are a lot more resistant. Like I've I've had the gray bugs before, um, or yeah, you know, and they they I think it's like a six to eight times the dose of the of the uh, the red bugs. I don't even see red bugs anymore. I haven't seen them in years because I think they were easy enough to eradicate out of the hobby. But yeah, yeah. No, I've I've seen the I don't know if you've ever seen the black hopping bugs. They took ten times the dose of interceptor oh, really? to kill. Yeah, black yeah. bugs. Yeah, I've heard about them. They luckily were, haven't come across yeah. them. No, there's there's so many nasty pathogens out mm-hmm. there. I mean, I keep uh, springeride damsels, six lined wrasses, a bunch of pseudochromus, a bunch of chorus wrasses, and everything gets dipped and quarantined. Mm-hmm. So, I, and I still know something will sneak by. I mm-hmm. I. I because the one thing is, is that the eggs are seemingly impervious to nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. There's nothing that kills the eggs of any of these predators that anyone I know of has found. I mean, whoever does that, that's where you're going to make some money. Yeah. Look, dip it in this and it kills the eggs. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's I, what somebody should be. I mean, seriously, that's yeah. what somebody should be working on. I don't think there's any way to do that without, I mean, yeah, without killing, killing other the things. corals and yeah. the fish and everything else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yeah. The one thing that I discovered was um, in quarantine, I had some of those, the new Acropora eating flatworms, the little purple ones. I don't know if you've come across those and they scatter. I've seen them, but I, their eggs are laid scattered. They're, they're, I'd say much worse than the regular flatworms. Um, I found, I set up a small system with, I threw in like 25 peppermint shrimp that are the, the ones from Jakarta. They're called the quick, quick, quick and thali. Lismata, okay. um, and they will go right to those things and eat them and the eggs. So, oh, you know, okay. it's a biological yeah. solution. I don't know in a big tank if they would get to everything, but it's um, if you have the option to set up kind of a hospital tank, then, you know, because why not have a hospital tank with hospital workers in it? <laughs> yeah, know? no, that, that's I, I have that as my frag tank is my frag slash quarantine tank. Mm-hmm. And that has uh, five spring ride damsels, a half dozen uh, Six-lined wrasses, some aptasia eating filefish, and now I'm going to add those peppermint shrimp. Yeah, get, yeah, so. you should. They're from Jakarta. Um, okay. Yeah, the springer eyes, you find they eat flatworms, and, like, they're pretty opportunistic little buggers, right? Like, they'll kind of go for whatever. Yeah, they'll, yeah. Pick, they'll, they'll pick stuff up. Well, what's interesting, in my big tank now, I have a trio of orange spotted filefish. And I, you can do that in a big tank, mm-hmm. and they haven't caused any damage, 
but they are constantly picking at something on the corals. I've never seen them cause damage on the corals. And I only did this after Sanjay had them in his tank for two years. And I'm going, you know what? That's a spectacular fish. My corals are growing fast enough. I think I can get away with putting some in the tank. Mm -hmm. And they are, one, very interesting. Two, they're constantly picking at the corals. But one of the more interesting things is every time I put a new frag in the tank, they will immediately go to it. I mean, with literally within seconds. Mm -hmm. And they will pick all around it. And I don't know what they're picking at, but there's never any damage to the frag or any of the other corals. Mm -hmm. But they go over every single new frag like it's a new kid in school, and they check it out. And whatever's on the surface, they clean huh. off of it. What? Sorry, what fish do you say this was? Orange-spotted fowlfish. Oh, okay. Yeah, because those are really cool looking, and I've kind of always like wanted one. But uh, I've kind of always thought, oh, that, what's that going to bother in my tank? Well, everyone has always been under the, the thought that they eat the coral polyps and mm -hmm. consequently or the tissue and kill the corals. But if you look at their mouth, it's like a, a couple of big lips. It's yeah, not it's really true. It's like a little, like a, it's a little, like that little guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like a larvatus yeah. butterfly. They can go in and pull the polyps mm -hmm. out. Mm -hmm. It's it's unique. And I mean, what else is curious is they sleep in the exact three same spots every night. Mm -hmm. They each have a staghorn coral that they wedge themselves in at 1045 before the lights go off at 11. And if I go there in the middle of the night and look with a red flashlight, they're wedged in there. They do not move the entire night. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, it sounds like we should uh, invest in stocks in uh, orange Stocks spotted needs to go off. <laughs> I, I, I don't suggest them for a small tank, yeah. but for a 500, you can get away with them. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. So no, nobody yeah. with a small tank go run out and buy one tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, you might be able to get one in a 120, but that's probably the smallest. I would, and you have to have really good SPS growth mm -hmm. because initially I tried putting these in my soft coral tank thinking, okay, how much damage can they do in a soft coral tank? They did no damage because they were starving to them. They got to mm -hmm. be like potato chips. They were so thin. Mm -hmm. But again, I knew where they were sleeping. So I caught all three out one night put them in this tank, said, okay, we're going to either, they're either going to do really well or they're all going to be dead. Mm -hmm. Within two weeks, they were all fat. Yeah. And they found tons of food and fattened up. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And like I said, they, they, I haven't seen them damage anything. <laughs> I just see them constantly picking from coral to coral. They, I mean, they're constantly moving and they, it's interesting. They don't have really good swimming capability. So wherever yeah. the current is, you can watch them get blown around the tank, but they always find the spots they want to go to. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, well, I guess in a reef, they're probably a pretty, like, um, reclusive kind of, you know, just kind of weaving through the reef, and, and they're probably not out in the open water that much. That, and I wonder if also their coloration, I mean, bright mm -hmm. fluorescent blue with orange dots tells other fish that they're poisonous, because yeah. usually that's the case. Maybe they are. Maybe but they I, don't taste very yeah. good either. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but nothing has bothered them, So, yeah. and they don't really bother anything, so mm -hmm. it's been a... They've been in now since September, mm -hmm. so almost six months. Cool. So it's been, been been something interesting that, you know, fish you always want to try. Yeah. But. Cool. Um, we run out of ideas. After 40 years, there's only a few new things I could possibly yeah. do. Well, I mean, it's never going to end, really, but <laughs> you've tried uh, a lot. Hey, guys, I just wanted to take a quick second to say thank you for your support of the podcast so far. Just remember to like share, 
comment, and especially subscribe to our channels. And now there's a new way that you can support us if you want to go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash beyondthereef, where you can make a financial contribution. I'd like to thank Bobby Heath for being our number one contributor and keeping this podcast ad-free. I don't think this counts as an ad. Anyways, back to the show. Um, actually, I want to go back to when you were talking about, um, you know, the sort of data you collected on these other systems. Um, how many of these people would you say were doing trace elements and regular ICPs? Uh, one was doing regular ICPs. Really? All the rest were doing ICP testing when it was a problem. That mm -hmm. may have changed because ICP testing in the last four years has gotten more available, less expensive, and more reliable. Mm -hmm. So I, I've thought about going back to them and redoing it, but it takes so much work and you have to have so much time to sit down and go through all this data. Yeah. I mean, I had close to a, a, over a thousand data points. I mean, it was just insane how much data I collected, but we had nothing to do for, yeah. literally for a year. So it was, it was worth it from that standpoint. In terms of trace elements, uh, probably then probably five were doing it. And now probably 10 or 12 are doing it because mm -hmm. uh, trace elements are, in, in my opinion, are really good if you have everything else is in line. Yeah. If your tank is unstable, they're not going to help you. If your salinity is bad, which people don't ever talk about, mm -hmm. but I have seen more people have more problems because their salinity testing was way off yeah. than probably any other cause in the last couple of years. I mean, they have buy a $500 frag. And they're using a $12 high plastic hydrometer Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I used to go to aquarium systems and they would have a thousand of them sitting out and probably of those 200 had the exact same number. Mm -hmm. All the rest were all over the place. So yeah. That's not a reliable instrument. No, definitely not. Yeah. And, uh, I, yeah, I, I've, I've had orders I've shipped to people before and they've messaged me, you know, the next day and been like, everything died. And I was like, um, what are you using to check your salinity? And they're like, Oh, just the salinity probe on my apex, and I'm just like, okay, get get another source, get a refractometer, get a get another friend's water, or whatever. And if, you know, in this case, their salinity was through the roof. They didn't even really understand salinity, so yeah, you know. No, I mean, I've gone back to using old glass hydrometers, mm -hmm. and I have two of them—a really big one and a smaller one—and I check them for reliability. And every Saturday morning, I check the salinity. Yeah. I mean, uh, I I was at fault too. With I mean. The, the first time this happened was probably 10 years ago, and my salinity was like at 35, and I'm 1.035. Mm -hmm. So it was astronomically hot. Yeah, and I couldn't figure out why the fish were all so skinny. I mean, they were eating like pigs, but they were so thin because they were giving out literally all their fluid was going back into the water. Mm -hmm. So I, I realized what happened and slowly, gradually brought it down because that's the other thing people, oh, look what this number is. I got to change it immediately. Yeah. And that stresses out. It didn't. It didn't happen overnight. You don't need to bring it back down overnight. Take yeah. your time on things. People don't understand that. Yeah, I'm curious if you saw anything look better with higher salinity, or, or you know, because it's a, effectively a faster metabolism for the tank, right? Like, like you were saying with the yeah. fish. Yeah. I don't know. No, I, I saw. I saw nothing better at a higher salinity. I saw everything perk back up, get fat, and uh, the corals colored up. They were. They were. You could tell they were stressed at that higher salinity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, I, something I was talking about with uh, Ray actually was uh, you were recommending microwaving frozen food to potentially, uh, I guess, like 
take out the aspect of maybe some bad bacteria getting into the system through frozen food? Where, where did that kind of come from? I, I basically did, after I treated the first time with Vib, for Vibrio with a low dose of uh, Cipro, I found that I had basically bred out Arcobacter. And mm-hmm. then the question is, okay, where did Arcobacter come from? And the only thing I could find when I did the research was from, from some frozen fish foods. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily just for fish, but also for humans. That's why you're never supposed to eat like raw frozen seafood. You're supposed to cook seafood mm-hmm. if it came to you frozen. Mm-hmm. You can eat fresh. Typically doesn't have it. But whatever they're doing in, in some of these processing houses leads to Arcobacter forming in, in, the, mm-hmm. in the frozen food. Yeah. So then further research found that if you do microwaving for like 15 seconds or so, it should kill off most of the bacteria without yeah. overheating the food. Because the last thing I want to do is feed my fish hot food. Yeah, yeah. So 15, <laughs> 15 to 20 seconds seem to be the, the key. Mm-hmm. And since I've done that and done a, another test, I have no Arcobacter in the hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, and like obviously you thaw it first and then... And then you just zap it for. No, I did it. I do as I do it as frozen, and it helps yeah. it thaw a little bit too. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. It doesn't matter if it's frozen or thawed when you hit it with a microwave; it'll go through it and kill yeah. whatever's in there. I guess that's one of those things. Is like even if people want to, if people want to try it, it's either doing almost nothing or it's helping a little bit with that problem. It you know it's probably not yeah. making anything worse unless you're nuking it too much. Then you're probably cooking the food a bit, which is you know probably breaking down the the nutrients in it a bit, but. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So 15 seconds isn't going to cook it. It should kill the bacteria. And I, I'm assuming 99% of the food doesn't have Arcobacter in it. But if you get that 1% and you start having problems in your tank, it's something you have to look at and address. Mm-hmm. So in, uh, I know enough people that have had RT and STN issues and everything else is perfect except they're feeding, for lack of a better term, not the best frozen food. Mm-hmm. That may be the That may be the source. Mm-hmm. it's a potential yeah i mean i i haven't done quite enough research in it to i mean but i i mean i do have a microscope and i can look and see what things look like so i mm-hmm. have a pretty good idea what different bacteria look like yeah yeah I'll, I'll ask a couple other people about it um maybe that are coming up on the show too to kind of get an opinion on frozen foods and what be, might be coming in because yeah i i don't know i mean actually a lot of the food i feed is uh is a plankton that's collected in the waters near me here um so it's like oh, okay. marine plankton um they're about the si- same size as mysis like maybe a little bit bigger oh, okay. yeah and I, I i mean i can't imagine if it's just collected straight out of the ocean and then they flash freeze it in blocks like you're only going to have ocean bacteria in there right i would assume yeah <laughs> i would assume too yeah but like I said, I don't know what's in the processing plants. I don't mm-hmm. know. I mean, I know that for animals and particularly fish, it doesn't have to be as clean as it is for humans. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I guess back on the trace element thing, are you doing trace elements and uh, regular ICPs? Yes, I'm. I'm doing reef moonshiners, uh, uh, trace elements all mm-hmm. the time. Uh, the one I found to be critical was fluoride. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I've got that, I mean, my fluoride in my tank was like 0.31. It's not like 1.2, 1.3, which is where it's supposed to be. Yep. And that has helped reduce significantly the amount of stress seemingly on the corals. And we've gotten faster growth. And I now do once a month ICP testing with Fauna Marin's uh, ICP test. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because I, I like Fauna Marin because he not only looks at the – he's done over 250,000 tests. Yeah. So I know he knows what he's doing. He has the state-of-the-art equipment. And in addition to showing – 
the numbers. He also looks at the ratios between yeah, things. Yeah. Because, because uh, you know, you may have, you know, uh, fluoride, bromide, and a couple others, and one of them's off. And just by that one being off, it throws off the other three. Mm, yeah. So you have to look at the ratios between things rather than just single entities saying, oh, look, my iodine's perfect. Yeah, yeah but these and this and this are way off. Yeah. So, yeah, no, those ratios are really interesting. That's something I'm going to get into with Claude. But I would second your opinion on fluoride being really important. I had a very similar low level, like 0.39 or, you know, somewhere in that below range. And gradually, I actually brought it up a lot slower than the recommended daily safe daily amount to raise it by but i got it up yeah. to um point i think what would it have been one 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 yeah uh so and what's natural seawater one one point two or something like that one point two yeah so i'm trying yeah. to get it up to there but i you know and i noticed a big difference in the blue tips of a lot of my tenuous um what else did i notice i don't know just in general i think things look quite a bit better well, what's interesting is I got it, I overdosed and I got it to 1.8 and mm. literally all of my blue corals turned purple. Purple. <laughs> and, then I, and then I gradually brought it down and they turned blue again. Yeah. I mean, it was one of the more interesting things yeah. I've seen is that the, the blue corals turned purple. I mean, they were really deep purple. I mean, they were yeah. beautiful purple, well, they but probably I wanted got... the blues. They probably got as blue as they could possibly get, and then they were just like, uh, "What else can I do with this?" <laughs> so maybe yeah, that was purple. Too much. Uh, I'll show him he's used too much. Yeah. So I, I stopped for a couple months, and after two months, everything went back to being purple. And the blues that were supposed to be blue stayed blue, but the purples, the blues that weren't supposed to be purple, went back to being blue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, that's good to know that you not to encourage anyone to overdose it, but. It can be above natural seawater, and it's not going to kill stuff. But that probably has yeah, to do with that ratio with iodine too. I bet if you had yeah. really low iodine and really high fluoride, or you know, vice versa, you're, you're probably more likely to have problems. Or bromide too, if you have low yeah. bromide and high fluoride. But I see, I dose a small amount of uh, Lugol's iodine every day, mm -hmm. so that keeps my iodine pretty steady. And it's yeah. also what uh, some of the, the tanks I saw in England did. They dose Lugol's every day, you know, three, four drops you know, as a way to keep the uh, bad bacteria down. Hmm. Yeah. So every, everything is everything is related to everything yeah. else. Yeah. There's nothing that's – it's all a spider web. And you do this and three other webs, strings on the web are uh, affected by it. Yeah, totally. Well, and that's kind of the interesting thing, again, with the fauna total ICP. I think once you've done – four or five of them it makes predictions for what could be mm -hmm. potential problems in the tank but yeah the ratios right. are really interesting and i think when you consider how important we know iodine is and has been kind of probably one of the trace elements we've kind of considered important um it, it, it's gonna say for sure that fluoride is is very important yeah uh, any other trace elements you really think I mean, it's hard to say if any are more important because they seem to have this synergetic kind of thing they all do with each other. And I know Andre Mueller kind of says that too. He kind of says, you can't just do this one or this one. You got to kind of, it's all the way they work together. But anything in particular that you've noticed? Um, well, I've you know. looked, I've actually tried to read as much as I can about it to find out about each individual one. And a couple of them I have found, at least for me, to be more important. Mm -hmm. One is nickel. Yeah. And that's based on a study where they found that the nickel level in one area of the reef near a nickel processing plant was like 10 times what it normally should be. Mm -hmm. And then when there was a bleaching event all around, 
the area that had the higher nickel didn't succumb to the bleaching of yeah, it. Yeah, I think I, I read that somehow predicted. Too. Yeah, that's yeah, interesting. I mean, so I always try to make sure that I maintain a nickel level mm-hmm. higher than they, they recommend, which is basically undetectable. Yeah. And the other one is manganese. Just from anecdotally talking to people that kept their manganese levels up, one, they seem to have more success with the gonioporas, mm-hmm. and two, I, I tried not to add it for a couple of months just to see what happened, and I did see some of the coloration on some of the more vibrant corals fade, at least mm-hmm. from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Started adding it again, and they perked back up again. Yeah. And that was the only thing I manipulated. So from my point of view, those are two others that I would definitely make sure I had enough of and mm-hmm. was adding and was at the, the right levels. Uh, some of the other ones, you know, that are like parts per billion, like vanadium and beryllium. Yeah. I, I don't really see the point. I mean, they, they may, I mean, there's literature uh, on vanadium mm-hmm. that it's critical for growing uh, sea squirts and other tunicates. So if you want to grow those, that may be something to add to your tank. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's some other ones like molybdenum, which also might be beneficial for helping corals develop their defense mechanism mm-hmm. and be stronger. So if you, if you have, I, I'm retired now, so I try to sit and read mm-hmm. about this all the time. Uh, and you, but the, the problem is you'll find three articles that say this does this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Then you'll find a fourth article that say this does nothing. It's garbage. Yeah. And then yeah. you go, okay, who do I believe out of this? You know, then you got to look at their methods and how they did it, what their level of their testing are. Because a lot of these numbers are so small that, uh, uh, unless people actually took the time and had two tanks, one they added nickel to, one they didn't, and they basically ran them the same, you're not going to say, okay, yeah, this is definitely the difference. It's more, okay, I added it, I saw something good, I didn't add it, I saw something bad, and you have five guys anecdotally saying, and you know, as well as I do, you have five guys and ask their opinion, you'll get six different opinions. Yeah. So it's not, it's not conducive for the scientific study of what actually works or doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing, too, is the tank's always, like, shifting in one way or another. So, like, you know, like, maybe you did make one change, but, like, you know, the biome of the tank could be slightly changing or the rate of depletion of something could be changing. Like, there's there's always, like, there's always this unknown factor, you know. Like, even if you set up, like, a lab with two systems with the exact same water chemistry and same setup and you altered one, there's still just always a chance that something, you know, was a little different between the two systems, right? So it's so hard to know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and everything interacts with everything else. You know, you affected this, but this also has an effect on this and this, and you don't even realize that. We don't even realize it because there's no literature on it. So yeah. you, you we're, we're at best still guessing on a lot of this stuff. I mean, like I said, if your tank is stable and the parameters are good, Trace elements, in my opinion, will be beneficial. But if they're not, you're wasting your money. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, that's how I look at it. If you have things stable and your parameters are good, particularly salinity, alkalinity, calcium, and magnesium, you're going to be good. Yeah. Adding the trace elements may kick things into high gear. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I actually wrote an article this probably eight years ago on limiting factors. There are, in biological processes, there's always something that is a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. Is the limiting a factor your alkalinity is too low? Is the, is the limiting factor your lighting isn't strong enough? Is the limiting factor you aren't adding trace elements? 
something will always be a limiting factor. Mm-hmm. And our job is to find out what the limiting factor is, eliminate it, and then go to the next limiting factor. There's mm-hmm. always going to be something. Yeah. You know, you have a fish that likes to eat the tips of corals when they're growing real fast. Well, that's a limiting factor. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you know, it's, that, that, that's how it works. Oh, it's like going to the gym or something. It's like the your your weakest part of your lift is in the weakest muscle. You know, it's not the that big muscle that you think's doing most of the job. It's those little moving muscles or whatever. Like it's there's yeah. always some weak link or something that's, you know, setting it off, but yeah. Um, actually something interesting about that I like about, um, Fauna Marin too, is they do actually have a farm and a lab. So they, they do get to kind of, you know, use their products like on corals and see how they actually take, I don't know how many separate systems and how much experimenting they do, but I'm going to ask Claude about that for sure. He has, he has a lot of systems Mm -hmm. and he can tell, I mean, he's been doing this almost as long as I have. He can tell by looking, okay, this tank is good. This tank is stressed. Let's figure out what the stressor is. Let's run the ICP test. Let's look at all the other parameters. I mean, I, I like I said, I talk to Claude at least a couple times a week mm-hmm. because we we share this, um, let's say, obsessive compulsive disorder that we have for this hobby. That in a lot of instances is necessary to get to the the nitty gritty of what's critical and what isn't. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's the other thing that has changed a lot in the hobby is so much of it is social personalities where you could have a 10 gallon tank with a goldfish in it, but you have 20,000 posts. So mm-hmm. you're thought of as a, as a genius in the hobby, <laughs> which uh, it's true. And and you're basically anonymous versus in the early years, people like Julian and Charles and myself and Bob Fenner and others, we put our names to what we were doing because, okay, you can call me out on it. Cause here's my name. Now you can't even find out who half these people are. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that, that's one of the problems. I mean, if, if you think something is this good, then put your name to it. Yeah. Well, and part of that, too, I think is, um, you know, there's people that are on the research side or really digging deep into the learning side and then taking that information and, you know, stating their opinion or whatever, putting that out there. And then there's other people that are just repeating what other people are saying. You know, so like, I mean, I'm kind of guilty of that. It's like I'm trying to take information from guests I have on this podcast and kind of amalgamate it into, you know, I I don't even like saying facts in this hobby. You know, I would say, you know, occurrences that seem, you know, worth worth looking at. But but yeah, I think the language is really important when we talk about this hobby. And I think that's something actually you're very good at. You know, when you state your opinions, (laughs) I appreciate that. I I say my opinions versus okay, and I. The one benefit I have of being in this hobby so long is I have lots of friends that I can talk to and we can compare notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been doing that from the beginning and we still do that because none of us, if there was one perfect system, we would all be doing it. But guess what? There is no one perfect system because mm-hmm. there's a thousand people or a million people all doing a thousand, it's a thousand different ways. Nobody's doing, everybody's not doing it all the same way. We understand light and that we need enough light. We understand yeah. we need to keep alkalinity, you know, but look at the alkalinity range. I mean, from seven to 11, that's a huge range yeah. compared to natural yeah. seawater. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, and we, we, you discussed it earlier. Okay. You look at strong lights, then you have to look at the nutrient levels, high mm-hmm. light, high nutrients, low light, low nutrients. Okay. This ocean. I mean, that, that's one of the things that really irks me is people think a reef tank is a small part of a reef. It has nothing in common with the reef other than it has salt water in it. Yeah. The biology content 
ratio from that to water compared with in the ocean, it's like a million to one. Yeah. I mean, they, the, the coral reefs do not need nitrate levels of two. They need it at 0.02. Why? They're constantly exposed to mm-hmm. fresh 0.02 water. Yeah. It's not the same in a reef tank. Yeah. But, you know, you, you try to explain it to people. They look at you like, you have corals. That, that's a reef. No, no, no. This is a reef tank. This is a small little box yeah. that was conceived by me that has literally nothing in common with a reef. Yeah. If you look at the sort of biological diversity per square foot of a reef tank versus a chunk of reef in the ocean, it's probably very, very different, like you say. Yeah. No, I mean, and in, in when you go diving, what do you see? You see corals the size of pianos, one next to the other, next to the next. Mm-hmm. In our tanks, we have little quarter-inch frags, all two inches apart. It doesn't look anything like a reef. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, maybe in the beginning. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's not the same. And, and they started on, on dead rock versus on old dead coral skeletons. Uh, they have fish from 12 different places all in there. Yeah. Yeah, and they feed it far more than the fish ever get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm guilty of that as anyone. I have really fat fish, which when you go out on a reef, they are not really fat fish on the reef. Mm-hmm. I mean, they aren't constantly given all the food they want as often as they want. It, that's not how it works out there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so we manipulate things to our benefit, but you have to look at manipulating things to the reef's benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean. Mm-hmm. By overfeeding the fish, are we giving them fatty livers, and as a result, are we shortening their lifespans? Probably. I, I mean, that, that's the same thing happens with humans. If you you fatten them up, livers go bad, and that's that's what happens. Yeah. So it, it's probably the same with fish. So I have actually worked on cutting down how much I feed the tank, and I can honestly say I have not seen any negative impact to reducing how much I feed. Yeah. I feed tiny amounts often. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm tired and I come home. Plus, I have automatic feeders on everything that put in a little bit of food. The only problem with that is there are smart fish and there are dumb fish. Yeah, The yeah. smart fish know. They listen to that sound of that thing. I mean, it, and it's as quiet as can be, but they can still sense the vibration. And they're right there underneath, and they gobble mm-hmm. up the food immediately versus the dumb fish haven't figured it out. But that's the <laughs> yeah. Pavlov's bell ringing for them. Yeah. So those are fish I have. Like I had a rabbit fish that was starving to death. I literally had to get a cup, let it put its nose in, and I would feed it through the cup because the other fish were would, were much more aggressive it. than it was. Yeah. Yeah. But I got it to stay alive, and now it's just as aggressive as the other fish. Yeah. But, I mean, those are simple, stupid things I've had to do over the years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Always picking something up. Uh, I guess yeah. uh, we could talk about major elements because I've been really thinking a lot lately about – um, you know, the sort of bowling method versus calcium reactor versus calc versus even like the one part. I've always used a combination of things. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm starting to feel like I want to maybe move back to just doing more of the bowling system. But I do have big calcium reactors, so I don't want to pull them off. Um, but what are you kind of uh, the biggest fan of? I had run calcium reactors. But what I found is every time I went on vacation, something mechanical on the calcium reactor went. Mm-hmm. Uh, the pumps went, uh, the tubing got plugged up, yeah. something bad happened, and I always had to have a backup system ready. Now I go to a doser, and I can see what the levels are. I can adjust the dosers on my phone. But in addition to that, I'm also running Kalkwasser. Yeah. So I'm a, a firm believer in multiple things. The Kalkwasser not only adds uh, 
calcium, but it also buffers the water and or, or bumps up the pH of the water yeah. and also precipitates out some of the things. One of the things, sadly, yeah. it does precipitate out is fluoride. Mm. So if you do calcvoster, you probably have to add more fluoride to the yeah. system. Yeah. Initially, I didn't know that, but Claude straightened me out on that. Mm-hmm. So I know with using calcvoster, I do that. That's interesting. But yeah. Since since my pH now runs uh, down to eight one at night and up to eight three eight four during the day, the growth on the corals has increased. Yeah. Uh, again. Yeah. Uh, a significant amount. Yeah, and so I dose calc at night context, as well. I dose calc at night, and and my pH is a little higher range than that. But I definitely have noticed, uh, like you know, faster growth, and you know, the system's definitely running in a pretty, pretty fast mode, which I think is is good if you want to grow corals fast, but I think you're a little more susceptible to um, certain kinds of swings and stuff when you're running levels. Like my pH will hit 8.65 sometimes, which is kind of, I don't know if that's scary. I don't know what the really scary point is, but. That's uh, you're right on the border there. Yeah. Everything I've read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I have messed up and dumped a a ton of calcavoster and got the pH up to uh, almost nine. I had major issues when I did that. This is probably mm-hmm. like 10 years ago. Yeah. But I, I know that if you go much above eight, six, you start running into issues. Yeah. Yeah. And you were talking but about. But um, that's why I use the balling method. Uh, I mean, I do three part. Yeah. Uh, magnesium, uh, buffer, and calcium in addition to the calc vosser. Yeah. And are those just like straight up elements like like calcium chloride? Like, or are they, do they have trace in them? Calcium chloride, calcium chloride, soda ash. Magnesium, magnesium sulfate, magnesium chloride, and mm. calcvoster. So it's just soda no, ash. No you don't dose sodium bicarb. Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, what do I do? A ratio. S- yeah, six to uh, six to two, or three to one. Three to one. Yeah, three to one. Bicarb to carb. Uh, soda ash to bicarb. Okay, so using more soda ash. Yeah, I'm I'm about fifty fifty. So. Um, but yeah, I'm, uh, that's another thing I need to kind of get into because I'm I'm wondering if too much soda ash is kind of lacking some of that bicarbonate that maybe you know maybe that extra ion or whatever is is needed for coral growth. It would be a good fact check to do, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it, like I said, everything we think we know, there's always more to learn. Yeah, I mean, we I. I you know, people, you've been doing this 40 years. You're like an expert. I said, no, I'm still a beginner. There's <laughs> still so much we don't know about. I mean, like uh, I, I, I talk to uh, my friend Jamie Craig's all the time about the stuff he's doing with coral spawning, yeah. which is amazing. But it, it shows how much he knows rather than I know. <laughs> and I'm still learning from people like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, just looking at the lunar cycle, the, the temperature of the water, and particularly coral nutrition. I mean, he was one of the first people that really boosted the need for coral nutrition in order to get corals not just to grow, but to have enough energy to produce uh, eggs and sperm so that they could spawn. Yeah. If you don't provide enough nutrition, yeah, you can get happen. the corals to grow mm-hmm. fine, but you're not going to get them to where they develop you know, yeah. the ability to spawn. Nothing left over to make babies. Yeah, I've witnessed uh, a few spawns now in my, my SPS, and it's... Uh... It's cool. I like. I do plan to talk to Jamie as well. So I got a lot of questions for him. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, it's pretty crazy that he's it's, a, it's, it's a wealth of information. It sounds like he's got it dialed to a point where he can almost predict when it's going to happen, like based on the lunar cycles and the feeding and whatnot, which is wild. And, and it's with virtually everything. I mean, mm-hmm. he can pretty much get anything to spawn now. Really? From like, uh, Galaxia yeah. to uh, LPS corals. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, this will be interesting because yeah, I mean, I, I just wonder if uh, like, cause you know, like there's the mass spawnings that happen at the end of the summer or whatever in, a, in the great barrier reef, like it's kind of a yearly thing, right. but can we kind of trick nature? Like, can we make it happen once a month, once every two months? Like it's got to be enough time for them that's, to produce the eggs. But... Yeah. That's what he's doing though. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. It's no longer just once a year. Yeah. 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 Crazy. Yeah. Um, let's see what else. Just let me know if you're short on time or anything too. I can, uh, we can. Yeah, I have about another 10, 15 minutes. Okay. Sounds good. Well, why don't we do my rapid fire questions? Cause that's always kind of a fun way to end it. I'm just going to find my okay. notes for that. Cause I'm curious your answers on this stuff. I was trying to find okay. the right note. One second here. I had, you had your own document. Usually I just use my, my, <laughs> I have a master one that I use for my interviews, but, uh, okay. So you can answer these non-conventionally, just like, give me a funny answer if you want, or a species or a trade name or whatever. So, okay. So, uh, favorite fish. Uh, uh peppermint, uh, Bodiana supercularis, peppermint hogfish. Oh, okay. Yeah. They're cool. uh, the reason, reason being is. Uh, my father, who passed away a couple months ago, looked at my tanks my entire life. The only fish he ever noticed in 60 years of keeping fish tanks was the peppermint hogfish. Oh. <laughs> and it was in a tank behind my uh, kitchen table, and he was sitting at the head at the other side. And he looked up after he was eating and goes, wow, that's a really nice looking fish. Only time he ever commented <laughs> yeah. on any fish in 50 years. Never said anything so about that the, other, the rest of the tank that much, just... Yeah. Blue face angels, triggerfish, mm -hmm. you know, the gaudiest, craziest fish there were. Only fish she ever noticed was a peppermint hog. So yeah. that is my all time favorite fish. Yeah. They got personality too. Just kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Chilling. Uh, okay. Favorite SPS? It probably, and this will, this will sound trite, but the Paletta pink tip, just because more people know me because of that stupid yeah. coral. Yeah. And, that is probably the first and one of the only Philippine corals mm -hmm. ever brought in that I didn't even know this is how it came to be. In the early 1990s, I wrote an article on propagating corals, and I was at a show, and this guy walked up to me and goes, I live in the Philippines, and we're looking at being able to propagate corals. Mm -hmm. Can you write a or, propagation article for me? I said, sure. He said, I'll send you a gift. I said, okay, fine. What's your address? I sent him it. This is all via the mail. There was no computers or anything. Mm -hmm. A couple weeks later, there's a box sitting on my porch in a cooler, a cooler box. Yeah. I go, I, don't, I didn't order anything. What's this? I opened it up. There's four corals in it. Hmm. It's from the guy in the Philippines. And it, back then, you could ship stuff. No one was worried about bombs or anything. So no one looked inside. But how would he even know how to really pack it well back then? Like, you know, like I'm amazed they arrived it, alive. They were mounted on styrofoam. I told mm -hmm. them what to do. I said, mount them on styrofoam so they float, put rubber bands on them, mm -hmm. and ship them in a lot of water. So in a, yeah. you know, a two by two or three by three cooler were four bags of corals in a lot of water with these corals upside down. Mm -hmm. So I took them out. Two were brown. One was blue. One was green. One of the browns died, the blue one died, one of the brown ones lived, and the green one lived. Mm -hmm. 
and I put them in my in my tank, and probably for the next six months, the green one did nothing but encrust, encrust, encrust. Then all of a sudden, it like exploded in growth, and when it started growing, the tips were the most vibrant pink of any coral I've ever seen. Yeah, and I, this was when we were running them under halides. This was all under halides, mm-hmm. and I was going out to see Leroy Headley out of Garf. Which you may or may not have yep. ever heard of. Yeah, he was one Garf. of the first people propagating corals. Remember the Garf so, bonsai? Yeah. Yep, Leroy. You could bring Leroy one polyp of a coral. He would baby it and keep it alive. I knew if I brought him corals, he would keep them alive. Mm-hmm. So I brought him another blue one that I had, and I brought him the paletta, the, the pink tip green one. And a year later, people wanted colorful corals because that was starting to be the vogue. He had the paletta blue and he had the paletta pink tip and, and he named them because he got them from me. Nice. And that's how the, the name started and stuck. <laughs> and now that's pretty much the, the main coral that people know me for. Yeah. Even though there's like 50 corals named after me, that's the one everybody yeah. thinks of when they think of paletta Do you is think the paletta pink tip. It, it does, the paletta pink tip look a little bit like, like the Philippine like morph of like Natalensis, like ra- rainbow loom is it a little bit probably similar yeah. species. Yeah. Probably similar species. Yeah. Uh, and LED lighting has changed the coloration on this versus halides. Mm-hmm. If When this was run under halides, the tips were as pink as any ceratopore or postlopore you've ever seen the pinkness mm-hmm. of. And now under LEDs, it's a much more purple-violet color rather than the vivid pink. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, we don't have it in so Canada, it, so I'm going to try to get a piece someday just for... You know, it's a nice coral, but it's got a nice backstory. <laughs> you know, I got yeah. that Manila Spy actually too. The uh, that orange, oh, okay. orange piece. So I guess that's one of the only other uh, Philippine SPS that's around. Hey, there's there's some being snuck in. Yeah, they're illegally shipping them out of the Philippines. They're going through uh, 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 Hong Kong and other places, mm. and then they're shipping them out and saying they're coming from Tonga. Yeah. So there's there's a lot more. Philippine stuff coming in now. Yeah. Actually, uh, probably in like 1994, 1995, my friend Richard Harker went diving in the Philippines and he was the only person I know that had a really good underwater camera. Mm. And he brought back and showed me slides of the corals from the Philippines. And they were as nice under sunlight as the corals we have now under LEDs. Yeah, that figures. And, and yeah. so I always wished that they would come in. And supposedly there's like fourth and fifth generations now of Filipino maricultured corals, but they still can't ship them here. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah, I I dove in uh, Nusa Lambangan in Bali with uh, my wife, and we were diving with this British couple that had been traveling Southeast Asia for months, and they got in the water for about five, ten minutes, and they're like, yeah, we kind of seen it. And I'm like, what? It's like freaking amazing down there. And they're like, well, we were just in the Philippines, and it was like, it was like mind blowing. So this is like, okay. <laughs> so I was yeah. like, oh, I guess I got to dive in the Philippines. <laughs> That, that's pretty much what everyone has told me that has been diving in the Philippines. It's not like Indonesia. It's not like Bali. Yeah. It's like no place else. Yeah, that's crazy. Okay, that was not a very rapid one, but good combo. No. Uh, let's uh, <laughs> favorite LPS. Favorite LPS? Probably Amazeballs, Ganyapura. Yeah, I finally got a frag of that. It's freaking super nice. Uh, Softy. Yeah. Softy, uh, the Lethophytons I have in my soft coral tank, the pink mm. ones. Cool, yeah uh okay let's see so i think i know the answer to this but what would you uh, you could say because you could go back to the older stuff favorite light source 
ever if you could kind of weigh it all out, like all the pros and cons of it? I'd probably stay stay the radiant on LEDs. Yeah. But probably the, the fourth generation. Cool. Simply just, because they brought out colors that were never there before. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not just, you know, getting pigment out of the color. It's helping bring those to our eyes too. So, yeah. 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 And I mean, we can definitely agree that halides were probably one of the best lights ever for growing coral, you know. On, on oh, you can grow coral out of the water with yeah, halides. The problem was all the ancillary stuff, the chillers, the fans, the electricity cost. That was the that was their downside. Yeah, yeah. Okay, here's an interesting one. Um, if you were to pick one product line to run all of the water chemistry of a system, like one full full fledged product line, what would you what would you use? Because a lot of us in North America uh, use a mix of different systems. I would say. But... Yeah, I, I would probably use Fauna Marin stuff. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm kind of kind Simply of because I, I have the most trust with Claude. Yeah, cool. Uh, and then on similar uh, frame to that, uh, favorite salt. I've been using Instant Ocean for 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> I, use I love it. it. Sanjay <laughs> uses it. Uh, Jason Fox uses it. I mean, basically 80% of the people I know use Instant Ocean. Yeah. I mean, I, I they have a new owner, so they're, they're, I'm worried about the consistency. But for the last 39 and a half years, I know it's been very consistent. Yeah. Do you um, add anything to it before you do a water change? Like, do you bring up the calcium or anything? I used to do that. I, I test it in... Usually the alkalinity is a bit high. Mm -hmm. So if that's the case, then I typically add some uh, calcium chloride to bring it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I also do something interesting. My water changes in the old days when I had to take it out of the main tank and the corals would be exposed to air, I would do a water change in 10 minutes, even on my 1,200-gallon tank. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. just valves and powerful pumps. Yeah. Now that that I have a 180-gallon sump and I do a 50-gallon water change, the water just goes down to the bottom, and I add the new water to it over three or four hours. Oh, okay. So there's yeah. less stress on the on the corals and everything from long-term water, slow water change. Yeah. And I have found that to be significantly beneficial in terms of not stressing the yeah, corals. Yeah, that's true, actually, because if you're doing like a 20% water change, which a lot of people do, like that's a pretty big bunch of different water chemistry all of a sudden. Yeah. 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 Something to keep in mind. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what would be your favorite uh, aquarium wave pump? Um, I run uh, MP60s and MP40s. Yeah. 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 The Vortex, you can't really go wrong. They're so solid. No. Yeah. Totally. I mean, I've, I've, I've run different gyres, and the problem is they just don't produce as much flow as the MP60s or 40s. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, I think they're good for shallow kind of frag tanks. Because you get yeah. that surface coverage, but yeah, no, totally. And the pull, the back pull of the MP40s and MP60s is really good too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, okay. And uh, most hated pest? Montipra uh, eating nudibranchs. Easy. Yeah, yeah. You said that before. That's funny. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's actually been a fairly different answer from person to person. So <laughs> some people said Aptasia, yeah. which I think is super fair. It's like, yeah. uh, I, I had a bunch of them. I didn't have them in my main tank forever. Then all of a sudden, when I started feeding more aggressively, they like exploded. And I mean exploded. And I was at my wits end. I bought five uh, Aptasia eating uh, file fish to put in there. Mm-hmm. And within a month, there's not an Aptasia to be seen anywhere. Yeah, there you go. I love the biological solutions for things is always ideal like we talked about uh yeah yeah. 
So final question. Uh, this is more of a thought experiment, but if you had the financial means and say the life situation allowed you, uh, would you do a polo reef kind of tank or would you do it differently? I would do it differently. I love that tank. I mean, it's literally my favorite tank. I've been there three times mm -hmm. and every time it gets better than the time before. But what I would do is I would have maybe five or seven of the same corals and let them get to the size of pianos. Mm -hmm. And I would only, and I would only have, you know, a school of Antheus and a school of Chromis. So it would actually look and be as close to a reef as possible. Yeah. If I, if I was going to do one more tank, which I'm not, I have all the tanks and I've promised my wife, I'm not doing any more tanks. I would do a 240. It would have five acros in it. Each one would just be big and huge, and yeah. there'd be two schools of fish, and that yeah. would be it. Yeah, so more I mean, like that, a real that reef. Would be, yeah, yeah, that would be my dream tank right now because I've I've kept everything, I have the mixes of everything, I have pretty much all the fish I want, I've have mm -hmm. all the corals I want, but if I could grow five really big, gorgeous corals, mm -hmm. you know, like a, a giant Oregon tort for that deep blue, a nice purple or pink or raspberry hyacinthus for a nice table. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, a giant confetti, some uh, yeah. things like that, but only f three or five of them. Yeah. And just let them get, you know, as big as a coffee table. I think that would be spectacular. Yeah. I would definitely. love to see somebody do that. Yeah. Uh, maybe at some point. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. But that's uh, actually uh, the article I'm writing next month for the Intermediate for Reef Builders is going to be, are we coral collectors or coral hoarders? Yeah. So. Well, I think I'm a collector and a hoarder, and, uh, you know, the struggle is real. <laughs> I know. I, th I think we're all borderline. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I say I'm not going to buy any more corals, and then I go to a frag swap or a show, and there's something I've never seen before. Yeah. I mean, that's the one nice thing. There's always something we've never seen before. I go, you know what? I'm going to bite the bullet and get this. And Well, look at that one there. Oh, I yeah. got to get that, too. Yeah. And it's just. Well, that's the I other mean, thing. Right now, the the way the industry is now, and and the the collecting that's happening from our you know overseas suppliers is just we're seeing just so much variety. Like, I mean, we're seeing a lot of redundancy in mariculture, but but you know some of the wild stuff, especially goniopora, I never would have imagined gonies would be no. like they are. Like the ones that you know, like the glitter bomb, like you talked about, like or maze balls. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just it's wild, wild. Then you have red glitter bombs, green glitter bombs, mm -hmm. yellow glitter bombs, and you're just going, okay, what? And there's always something next. I mean, that's one of the nice aspects. The the downside, I see a lot more variety in corals, but I see less and less variety in fish. Mm. I see fewer unique fish. I see the prices have skyrocketed, but I just don't see the variety, and I don't see stuff that came in and go, I've never seen that before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's incredibly rare that I see something. I actually got a... Uh, cardinal fish uh probably six weeks ago that i'd never seen before that looks like in steeler colors it's bright fluorescent gold with black stripes and i'd never seen it before yeah well i, I imagine um well i'm sure andrew gets a crack at a lot of that really unique stuff but um <laughs> a lot of it probably goes to asia too i would think for those uh, higher a lot fish. of it does yeah 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 but yeah, no, I agree. There, a lot of fish people buy now are uh, tested and proven ones that can, you know, do a job and, you know, yeah. tested and proven, but yeah, totally. Well, awesome convo. I really appreciate your time. We'd definitely chat oh. some other time. Yeah. You're yeah. more than welcome. And whenever you want yeah. to chat, just let me know and we'll set it up. Yeah. Awesome, man. Okay, cool. 
Thanks for listening to this conversation with Mike Paletta. Make sure you check out some of the links to his articles and publications. And I'm sure Mike would be happy to hear from you too if you have any specific questions. If you have any suggestions for future guests, uh, want to just ask us a question, make a suggestion, make a criticism, whatever you want to say, uh, feel free to reach out at beyondthereefpod at gmail.com. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and leave us a review. And if you're looking for high-quality aquacultured corals in Canada, please check us out at fraggarage.ca. Hope to hear from you soon.